Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. That's info at icrnetwork.org. everybody. Uh, this is Matthew Stevenson. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Professor Paul Lagunas of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Paul, thank you very much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you, first of all, about a book project that I know you're working on. In fact, we've just had the opportunity to spend uh, the day with some other academics talking a bit about your manuscript for a, a book project, the tentative working title of which is The Watchful Eye and the Cracking Whip, Field Experiments on Corruption Control in the Americas. So tell me a little bit, what is the book about and how did you come to the topic? The book is trying to offer tested solutions for some of the corruption we find in Latin America. I'm focusing on bureaucratic corruption uh, that you might find especially in a city like Mexico City, like Lima. And I'm focusing even more particularly on the sort of corruption you would, with regards to the built environment, what I'm calling the built environment. So that's all structures that house society, roads that we ride on, the sidewalks that we walk on, but also the houses that we live in, the apartments that we live in, etc. So I'm looking at the corruption that affects those, those parts of, uh, of our day-to-day -day life in Latin America, But again, focusing on, on trying to see if audits in particular can help control corruption in this. Terrific. So say a little bit more about the kinds of corruption you have in mind. So what are some examples of corruption in the built environment? Specific examples, tangible examples of what, what does this sort of corruption look like? So Matthew, I know you followed the Walmart scandal quite closely, mm -hmm. which hit Mexico in 2012. And it spoke to corruption and permitting. So essentially, the claim is that Walmart, in trying to obtain a competitive edge against its competitors, was bribing uh, officials in permits offices across Mexico. And they were obtaining building permits to build Walmarts across the country. And so that's, that's some of the corruption I'm interested in, is the, the government officials that you don't see, that you don't interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't necessarily respond to our interests because they're not elected, because they don't see us. They do a lot of what they want. They have plenty of discretion. A lot of them are doing good things, but some of them, as we, as we know, aren't. So I'm concerned about that sort of corruption, the corruption that has come up in certain scandals. With regards to public infrastructure, uh, I would call on another scandal that people will be familiar with, which is the Lava Jato scandal, which spoke to corruption in public, in public works. Now, in the, in the case of the Lava Jato, of course, we're talking about large works, public, public uh, infrastructure projects. I'm interested in rows as well and things that are more important to our day-to-day day -day lives. Uh, so that's the kind of corruption I'm, I'm most interested in. Great. And you mentioned a moment ago that you're particularly focused on 
audits, so audits of these programs. Can you say a little bit more about what kinds of audits you have in mind? What does the process look like? And what, what impact do these kinds of audits have on the sorts of corruption that you're studying? So as you noted, Matthew, the, the name of the book is The Watchful Eye and the Cracking Whip. There's this long-standing theory in political science and economics, actually, in the social sciences, let's say, that suggests that when you, re you respect the fact that government officials must retain an element of discretion to do their work. But the idea is, okay, we, we want, want to make sure that the decisions they make, that they use that discretion in the appropriate way, that they use it for the good of the public interest. And something that, that prevents that from happening or that allows them to use their discretion in a negative way is this principal agent problem, this information asymmetry, the fact that they know more about what they're doing than we do as citizens. So what if we place a watchful eye on them? That's the first question. What happens there? What if we empower society to ask questions through FOIA? What if we require government officials to post information about their bureaucratic procedures online? So these are some of the things that we can do. What if we have journalists investigate what bureaucrats are doing? These are some of the things that can set a watchful eye on the behavior of government officials. But I'm adding another element, which is the cracking whip. And the cracking whip is the need to punish those who are found to have done wrong. So in terms of your question, audits, how does this play into the structure of the book? Well, I'm suggesting that audits are a way to place that eye in the targeted site or targeted view of the behavior of government officials. But that at the end of the day, the audit itself is not enough. The audit has to be backed by those who have the power to sanction the officials. So that's basically the argument of the book. Great. You mentioned just a second ago in the context of explaining that, that we really need to think of this problem as what a traditional economist would call a principal agent problem, where the bureaucrats, the permitting officials, or the inspectors are considered agents and they have better information or they're the ones who are up close to the problem and that the principals, the, the citizenry or their bureaucratic superiors need to find the right kinds of mechanisms to control those agents. As I'm sure you know, in the world of corruption, anti-corruption, though the principal agent framework has been deployed by a number of people as a, as a framework for thinking about corruption, how to solve it, that approach has been subjected to critiques by a number of prominent scholars who work in the area, and the critiques tend to suggest that because corruption is what is sometimes described as a collective action problem, or because, uh, as a scholar I, I heard once put it at a conference, there is no so-called principled principle, a, a well in, in many systematically corrupt areas, a, a principle, a boss who actually wants to deal with the corruption, therefore... Uh, thinking about corruption in principal agent terms is not helpful, doesn't really get at the solution to the problem. So, so what's your reaction to that critique? Do you think that critique in some ways undermines the perspective that you want to bring to this project? So I think the, there's certainly space for the collective action theory to help us understand how to solve the corruption problem. I think there's, there's certainly this element of this relationship between distrust and corruption, which you know the literature well. And as I, if I had to summarize it, I'd say the idea is that uh, playing by the rules is sometimes personally costly, and I will be willing to assume those costs to the extent that I can trust that others are doing the same in society. So there is, and, and so to the extent that we can act as a collective, then we can reduce corruption. So I don't want to be dis fully dismissive of the 
collective action theory or its place in understanding corruption control. However, I, I also defend the principal agent model against those who try to dismiss it offhand. I will defend it uh, because, not just because I'm a student of Susan Rose Ackerman's and uh, I learned that theory and, and its value from her, but also because I've seen it work. I've seen a building's secretary in the city of Querétaro figure that you do not need to trust that he was himself honest. You need to just know that it was in his interest to make sure that the agents under his charge were doing their job properly. Why? Because a few years later, he knew he was, he'd be out of, out of office and the next person who could have his job could be an enemy, an adversary. And so he needed to make sure to, that everything was done correctly so that he's protecting himself. So it could be a very self-interested thing. You don't need to believe he's honest. And still he has incentives for making sure that things are run properly. And I saw how when these agents of his know that the principal has information about their day-to-day -day work and the quality of their work and the extent to which they're doing their work with integrity made a difference in them actually acting with integrity. So again, I'm not, I am not dismissive of the collective action theory and how it applies to corruption control, and I will challenge those, or I will defend the principal agent model against those who try to challenge it and be dismissive of it. Great. So let me move from, let me ask a similar kind of question, moving from the very abstract issues about whether the principal agent model is the right way to think about corruption control to a more specific concern or question that people might have if someone like you or someone else says, well, uh, if you've got a lot of corruption in a place like Mexico or Brazil or where have you, that implementing audits of these programs is likely to, to be effective. And the concern that I imagine many people will raise is, well, what's going to stop the auditors themselves from becoming corrupted? Aren't we dealing in many cases with uh, societies where corruption is so uh, systematic, it's so entrenched, it, it, it so permeates the bureaucracy that saying that one set of bureaucratic agents should monitor the behavior of another set of bureaucratic agents isn't really going to be all that effective, right? So again, the I guess another way to frame the critique is, well, sure, maybe audits are a great thing to use in a place like Sweden or Canada or the United States, but if you want to use them in a place like Mexico or the Philippines or Sri Lanka, the auditors themselves will just be corrupted or captured. Is that, what do you find in your research that bears on that question? Why, why doesn't that undermine the, the use of audits as a tool to address the sort of corruption you're interested in? The concern is, is certainly valid. The, there are cases of people who have the power to monitor others abusing that power. One case that comes to mind, maybe not the most fitting example, but still a, a memorable example, is somebody in, in, in the intelligence community using spy tactics on his wife to make sure she's being faithful. So that's certainly the abuse, somebody who has access to privileged information about people and whatnot, using that for personal, personal benefit. In Latin America, there are cases of, of actual controller generals uh, having to be dismissed from their job because they were found to, to be corrupt. So I want to recognize it. It's a legitimate concern. So how to respond to it? There are two, two approaches that, that I think uh, can help us respond to this question. One is, among the government officials you're going to rely on for the audits, to conduct these audits, to be the watch people, you want to ensure that the incentives they're facing encourages them to be 
honest. So you might look at people who have higher salaries, who would face higher penalties, and who are better trained than your average officials, so as to, so as to encourage, this would be a mix of variables that would hopefully encourage them to be more honest. This is a collection of variables that actually I, you can find, for example, in Melanie Mannion's work. Um, and this is how she suggests that in places like Hong Kong and other success stories or success cases, they've helped keep the watchmen or the watch people honest. But another approach is you maybe don't need to only rely on authority figures or public officials to be these uh, watch people. You might also rely on people in civil society who are close to people, who are close to the public, who might then be more inclined to, to be public interested. So in one of my studies, in the Peru study, uh, that's, the, that's exactly what we try to do. We try to have the watchful eye is the responsibility of an NGO that would have high reputation costs if they were to act corruptly. They would basically, their, their brand would be brought to zero. So those are two responses I would have to what is a valid question. Okay, so, and just to clarify, the NGOs can be the watchful eye. They can't really be the cracking whip, at least not directly. So you would still have to rely on people in the government to respond to an NGO report and respond in some way to take action against someone who looked like they weren't doing their job. That's right. And I would hope that because the NGO has found irregularities, that to the extent the NGO is more trustworthy by the public, then maybe that's a form of pressure on the authorities to necessarily act on cracking the whip. Now, do NGOs need to have some kind of formal agreement with the government auditors to have access to the kinds of information they could use to perform a successful audit? Or is this something that NGOs, you know, any of our listeners who happen to be working for NGOs, could just sort of take up on their own and start monitoring building projects, projects in what you call the built environment? How does this work exactly? So to an extent... There doesn't need to be an agreement if that context, if that country, if that city has provided enough information already online. So in the cases I've looked at, say New York, Mexico, Peru, quite a bit of information is already available. And what's not available, citizens could actually access it through FOIA. So in, in principle, they do not need, uh, NGOs or even Average citizens do not need to have a pre-existing agreement with, a, with an anti-corruption agency. However, the agreement will help, I think, ensure that the agency responds or pays attention to the results of the audit. But just to make this more concrete, if what we're worried about is that a, a building or a bridge or whatever is not up to code, that the building materials that are being used are substandard, for example, how would you be able to monitor that kind of non-compliance without actually having teams of engineers do inspections of the project? Or, are you, or when you talk about NGO monitoring, is that limited to sort of a subset of the kinds of issues you're talking about? Well, the NGO that I've collaborated with, and specific, specifically it's Proetica, it's Transparency International's chapter in Peru. They do monitor infrastructure projects on a regular basis, and they have, they have a set protocol for doing so. Now, whether they have examined or whether they've really examined such complex projects as a bridge, I don't, mm. I can't say. The projects that were part of my study and that I know the NGO has looked at are, pro are more day-to-day -day projects like roads, which are still hugely important, mm -hmm. but not as sophisticated. Now, I can see an agency or an NGO like Proetica hire out mm. some of the process, some of the work to a, an engineering company to help them with the monitoring. That was certainly something they could do. 
uh, they'd probably need some donor support, but they could do that. So I'm not suggesting that all forms of monitoring can be conducted by any NGO just on a whim, but I would say that in my experience, a lot of these NGOs, including Proetica, do have set protocols and procedures to, to conduct audits. I'll ask you a question that builds on that a little bit because I'm not really familiar with how audits work in practice. I, I know the term, I, I, I get the idea, but one thing I've always wondered about are what are what we might consider the human capacity demand, the human resource capacity demands of performing an effective audit. And the reason I ask this is, of course, you know probably better than I, in a lot of the countries where we're most worried about systemic corruption, these are what we might term low capacity countries. And that's not meant to be pejorative, but when national income is lower, when tax revenues are lower, when the proportion of the population that's highly educated is lower, there are just not as many people who have sophisticated training in anything. So one thing I would love, I don't have a handle on, I would love if you could, you could maybe enlighten me a little bit, to conduct the kinds of audits that would make a big difference in fighting corruption in what you're call, calling the built environment. How much training do people need? I mean, do you need really sophisticated people who can perform very complex kinds of financial analysis or engineering assessments? Or is this the kind of thing where there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, where even people with some fairly basic training can have a big impact? So I wish it was the case that it'd be easy for anyone to, to just do, but I don't think it is. So let's go back to the origin of the problem. It's this information asymmetry. So we're dealing with corruption in areas that, as the public really does, doesn't know much about. And part of the reason the public doesn't know much about, it's because of the, the complexities of, of, that, of that work. So that's, that applies to infrastructure projects, that applies to buildings. So there is some, some training necessary, I think, to, so it's not just access to the information, which I think is often available. It's also an, an ability to study that information correctly. In the, if I can call on an example of my own, the study that I conducted in Querétaro, it took me three months of preparation to be able to audit building permits. And that involved training by architects on how to read blueprints, it took time for me to study the laws, the building code, uh, the state code, etc. Um, it also took me time to collect all the necessary zoning maps and whatnot. So, and I and this was the one, the number one thing I was doing over the course of those three months. So it does take training. And what's concerning is that a lot of audits are only look at the documentation, only seek to see whether the procedure that was conducted, the work that's being done has all the documentation necessary. They don't check the quality mm -hmm. of the information. They don't verify the accuracy of the information. So I'd love to be proved wrong, but I think it does require a level of learning. So you basically became an auditor for these studies. I mean, you actually trained yourself or learned what you needed to do and then trained others so that you were in effect performing audits, at least for one of these studies. Am I right about that? Is that fair, fair characterization? That is correct. All right. Um, well, let me ask, given that some degree of training is necessary and a bunch of these countries are maybe have human capacity limitations that, that might be relevant, is there anything that the international community, either governments, international organizations, or civil society organizations, either are already doing or could be doing that would help on this front? I mean, is, there, is, this, a, is this an area where we're already seeing the international community playing a role in training either NGOs or government auditors? And... Could the international community be doing more? Would it be helpful? I think there's been a strong push over the past decade, maybe, I guess, further, since around, as far as I can tell, since around the two, early 2000s, to 
promote transparency in Latin America, which is a region I can speak to best. Uh, that is a step forward in helping activate the watchful eye. A lot of emphasis on transparency, making sure the governments are, are opening up. That's great. The V2.0 of this is helping those, not so much, I think, the day-to-day -day citizens, but I think these NGOs to conduct the, the monitoring that, they, that they're already doing. So, Matthew, I think you, you, you know the case of Mexico Evalúa, they're doing some extraordinary work, just as Boetica is doing some extraordinary work. Mexico Evalua, we've learned, is doing extraordinary work monitoring the use of public funds in Mexico to make sure that those, those funds are used appropriately. So we're talking about a group of very technically capable people who have a public interest who are conducting monitoring. So to your question, what can the international community do? Well, let's continue to emphasize transparency in the region for sure. But let's also fund and support these collectives that are on a day-to-day -day basis dedicated to monitoring government and ensuring that governments are doing what they should be doing. Terrific. So that, that, that helps build up the watchful eye part of this. What about the cracking wit part of this? So are we in a situation in many of these Latin American countries where as long as the transparency exists, which of course you say is not enough because a lot of times the information is out there, but if we add to the transparency training of either government auditors or collectives, NGOs, to do the monitoring, to produce the information, um, then that'll be enough because the cracking whip is already in place? Or are we in a situation where you think there are more reform efforts that are needed on the cracking whip side? Say a little bit about that. So if, in, another way to frame this is, let's say we, we trained all the auditors we needed and we could document irregularities in building projects throughout, let's stick with the Latin American region, how much would a difference that make by itself, and how much would we need to still see substantial improvements on the accountability side? We would still need probably the biggest step, the hardest step. So transparency, capable audits are still not enough. There, and there's still this significant step. This, uh, what comes to mind is, is Indiana Jones in uh, that third iteration of their movie where he, he needs to cross a bridge that he doesn't know is there. Um, for those who, who may have seen that movie, that comes to mind. That's the biggest step. And the step I'm referring to is confrontation. The willingness, I'm going to use the term willingness uh, carefully because it takes us to the question of political will, which is tricky. And I know you've written about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But there needs to be willingness to confront the corrupt. So we have evidence of the corruption. And now it it's time to confront them. It's time to take on the to assume the political costs, assume the risks of confronting people who are maybe probably very influential, very well positioned. And another thing that comes to mind is the response that Peru versus Mexico has given to the Odebrecht scandal that has affected the region. Mm -hmm. Both countries were clearly affected by the Odebrecht scandal, and yet Peru has been much more forceful than Mexico in confronting this. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, it's hard to you tell. You anticipated my next question. <laughs> why well, why do we see that? I can tell you why it's not. Odebrecht, if I remember correctly, had a higher investment in Peru than Mexico. So that means that Odebrecht was better positioned in Peru than Mexico. So in spite of that, in spite of apparently having more influence in Peru, mm -hmm. Peru is being more forceful. So why exactly? We can debate it. And I'll, I'll have to be very tentative in what I say. But I do want to recognize, just to, your, to the point of your question, it's not just transparency, it's not just capable audits. At the end of the day, it's the 
is the willingness to confront to confront the corrupt. So that actually is a natural transition to another issue that I want to ask you about, because of course you're doing this excellent, very careful, very focused academic research on the impact of audits and other monitoring mechanisms through through again very carefully designed but very targeted field experiments. But also you're generally very knowledgeable about corruption, anti-corruption, especially in the Latin American region. And it seems like we're at such an important and interesting time in the region generally. I'd really like to get your thoughts on where you think the, the region is headed on this issue with the understanding that, it, as you were just saying, maybe different countries are headed in different directions. And to set up the question, maybe I would say that if you asked me five years ago how I thought the Latin American region was doing on the fight against corruption compared to other parts of the world, like Southeast Asia or, or wherever, ever, I would have been very pessimistic. It would seem like the culture of impunity was still there. There was no real movement. Corruption was pervasive throughout most of the major countries in the region. I would have been very despondent. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have been very excited and optimistic because the Anti-Impunity Commission, CCG in Guatemala, seemed to be very effective and indeed was spawning potential imitators in other parts of the region, uh, including places like El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, it looked like we were going to see political change, and we did see political change in Argentina. The uh, Lava Jato car wash investigation in Brazil had, had started to move forward, was really holding people accountable in a way we'd never seen before. So like five years ago, I was really pessimistic. Two years ago, I felt really good. And right now, I'm feeling kind of pessimistic again. It seems like a lot of these efforts have stalled. We've seen the election of populist leaders who have hijacked some of the rhetoric of anti-corruption, but I think might be taking countries in a not-so-good direction. And so uh, I feel like I'm seesawing back and forth, but I'm not a regional expert. I don't really understand the underlying trends in the region on this issue. You know this, the, this region and this issue much better than I do. What's your sense, if it's even possible to generalize about Latin America as a region, about what you anticipate happening on the anti-corruption issue in the near to medium term? So as a whole, the region, when you look at the available data, which you know well has its issues, there is no clear sense of improvement, but also no clear sense of, of regression. Maybe that's a, just a, an issue of, with the data, but as a whole, the region doesn't show much change in the past six years. Now, this could itself be a point of, of disillusion. However, on a hopeful note, we do have success stories that, that are worth keeping in mind. We have the case of Chile, the case of Uruguay, and the case of Costa Rica. These are three countries that, well, in particularly Uruguay and Chile are, according to the available data, have as much honesty in government as would your typically wealthy country in the West. So that breaks with the stereotypes that some people might have about the region. Mm -hmm. Costa Rica is a super interesting case, a case where Bruce Wilson is one of the people who studied it, shows that in historically it's been it's been a gradual change of whenever corruption is found, there's an institutional effort to respond to it. So these three cases are worth highlighting because they break with the stereotype. Now, to your point, because I know you've also been following the region quite closely, Brazil. Brazil is a case that I have been very hopeful for because it's that fourth country in the list of from cleanest to most weighed down by corruption. Brazil is number four. And it's at that point between the cluster of countries that have high levels of corruption and right behind Costa Rica. So it's, a, it's at a tip, potentially tipping point. In its favor are these prosecutors who are taking that leap of faith that Indiana Jones took in that movie 
they're willing to take that step. They're willing to confront the corruption, the corrupt, and the corruption, and that's an ex extraordinary step. And there was also the the important work done by the judges. But you have the election of a new president, Jair Bolsonaro, who unfortunately has already, in his few days in office, taken measures or adopted measures that, at least his administration has, that are concerning to the anti-corruption effort. I've learned that there have been some efforts to limit transparency, and I don't ask me right now about the details because I've just learned this from a colleague of mine at FHV. but the general idea is that officials are now more able to call documents, place documents uh, under protection and not available for public scrutiny, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is concerning. This is a president who was elected on an anti-corruption agenda, and so you have this. Then you have in Guatemala the problem that this beacon of light, this agency that was proving successful, has lost a lot of, well, first has, has basically been clamped down or has been uh, attacked by the current president, but also has lost significant support from the United States, not from all sectors. I know there are lots of people in Washington that support the work of the CC, but from my understanding, there are certain elements in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, mm -hmm. that have not granted the CC the support that it needs. In my understanding, it's actually Senator Marco Rubio who has not lent the CC the support that it needs. So I would call on Senator Rubio, considering his care for the, for the region, his interest in the region, that he pays special attention to the CC, to, that he hopefully heed the call that the CC is an important model, perhaps for other parts of the world, that the CC has played in a very important role. We need the CC back up and running. So I would call on that kind of support. So one country you didn't mention, but what I really, where I really like to get your perspective in terms of a, of a country in the region that might be in a period of transition where things maybe could get better, maybe could get worse, is Mexico which is a country that I know you know very well, both because you've done a lot of research there, but also because you're a general student of Mexican politics and, and the anti-corruption effort there in particular. So as in several of the other countries in the region, we last year had an election. We have a new president, new administration, uh, substantial turnover both in the national legislature and in the state governments. What's your at least preliminary assessment for the prospects uh, for either progress or regression or, or nothing on the fight against corruption in Mexico? So I am skeptical of Lopez Obrador. I want to start with that because we should all be skeptical of politicians generally. <laughs> and I'm skeptical of this idea that one president can make all the difference in, in reducing corruption. That being said, the previous administration in Mexico was particularly problematic. We know that it was in the middle of a number of corruption scandals. And so Lopez Obrador comes in with this promise of change. And moreover, he's, he's stepped in with, uh, with measures of austerity, personal austerity included. You don't mean like economic austerity, right? You're talking about some, what, what do you mean by austerity? That's right. So it's not, not macroeconomic austerity per se. It's more requiring government, government officials and himself to live more austerely. There's some issues with that. I think when you don't compensate uh, bureaucrats sufficiently well, they might seek other sources of compensation. Or maybe you don't get the, the best bureaucrats in, in government because uh, you know the best bureaucrats end up getting more lucrative jobs in the private sector. Or maybe those who are uh, also publicly inclined just don't feel valued enough uh, on what the, what the dollar amount looks like. So, or the pesos amount looks like. So 
there's some issues with that that I'm not happy about. That being said, his personal austerity could potentially send a signal to other politicians of how they should behave. And there's something to that. I don't want to discard that the strength of, of a good example of a president who's not going to live you know, expensively in a luxurious life. I think there's something to that. I appreciate that. But my main point in all of this is that I think the, the effort in Mexico and elsewhere should be institutionalized, should mm-hmm. not rely on a Lopez Obrador, should not rely on a Bolsonaro. It should rely at the end of the day on institutions. And Mexico, thanks to civil society, thanks to extraordinary effort by civil society during the Peña Nieto administration, helped create the national anti-corruption system. And that system right now needs the backing of politicians so that the anti-corruption effort doesn't rely on, on a passing president, but actually, again, relies on a system, on a structure, on, on laws that are enforced. So where's Mexico, Mexico going to go? It depends largely on whether the politicians, including Lopez Obrador, give the backing to the national anti-corruption system. So one aspect of President Lopez Obrador's approach to corruption that I've heard discussed and, and criticized by some Mexican civil society activists has to do with the signals he sent, at least early in his administration, that he doesn't intend to go after and criminally punish high-level corrupt behavior by his predecessors, not just the previous president, but other high-level officials. So I've heard Mexican civil society activists say things like there shouldn't be any amnesty, uh, there shouldn't be impunity, and so forth. So so I guess there are a couple of questions here. One is just descriptively, as a political scientist, how do we understand the fact that uh, Lopez Obrador makes the fight against corruption and the corruption scandals of his predecessors such a central theme in his campaign? Why does he think politically it's therefore wise not to what some would describe as follow through on that by actually trying to hold these people accountable. And second, what's your evaluation? I mean, do you think that, uh, do you share this critical view articulated by many in the anti-corruption civil society community in Mexico that this is a big mistake and is, re- and is perhaps even a reason to, de- to doubt the sincerity of his commitment to anti-corruption? Or do you think that there's a plausible justification if it is indeed going to be his stance not to really try to take serious measures to hold accountable and punish corrupt actors from the previous administration? At first, this proposal of his made no sense no sense at all to me as an anti-corruption scholar. This is anti-corruption 101. Again, you have to confront the, the corrupt. If you don't, you generate a moral hazard. You basically show that it's okay to do what, you know, continue to, to behave corruptly. So I, I have to be extremely clear on this. It's a mistake not to follow through here. And the mistake, we can go back in history to 2000 when President Vicente Fox won as part of the PAN, as this part of extraordinary reform. And he comes in and he basically, it's said that he generated a pact with, there was this political pact, so as not to prosecute or not to pursue corrupt and that had been part of the previous governments. And as a result of that, you move, you fast forward and look at where we are today. The corruption problem in Mexico remains. So it makes no sense to me why Lopez Obrador wouldn't learn from that example if he's sincere about wanting to fight corruption. And I expect there are people who are sincere in his team, in his government, and even in, in society who voted for him, who would be extremely disappointed if he doesn't follow through. Because you can't demonstrate that the rules of the game have changed 
if you don't punish those who have already broken those rules. So what would you say, so a defense of his position that I've heard articulated by others, although not necessarily specifically in the Mexican context, might go something like this. As you said before, corruption is really not about the ethics of one individual person, at least not only about that, it's about institutions, uh, and that Mexican politics had developed patterns of systemic corruption, and that perhaps what Lopez Obrador is trying to say is, look, we're, we're, gonna, we're trying to change the system going forward. Uh, we want the system to be a, a new system going forward. But in the past, a lot of people, maybe implicitly even near people affiliated with me, might have engaged in a sort of dirty form of politics. Uh, but my objective is not to engage in recriminations or revenge. I just want to say we're setting a new tone going forward, and we're not going to get caught up in everything that's happened in the past. I take it you don't find that argument persuasive, and I'd like to hear why not. So so maybe let's say he, he just wants to come in and govern. He wants to focus on governing, and he doesn't want to, to get distracted by these confrontations that are required when you confront corruption. So that, again, will ultimately prove a, a mistake because you're allowing, you're, you're not demonstrating that the rules of the game have changed. Mm. And so sooner or later, he's going to then have corruption come up as a problem. So unless he's, he has to confront it or otherwise corruption is going to take over and become a problem in his administration, he's choosing to kick the can uh, mm. ahead. And that's, again, I, I insist, that's just going to, he's generated a moral hazard and it's going to become a problem for him. It's a naive explanation, but the only acceptable explanation I would, I would take is that he wants to focus on governing. It's naive, again, because at the end of the day, it means that it's created a moral hazard and it's going to bite, bite him sooner or later. Fascinating. So one other thing I want to ask you about that you mentioned in your response to a previous question that's kind of an interesting puzzle. And maybe to frame this, I'll focus on Brazil, but I think we could say a similar thing about other countries in the region, possibly including Mexico. So in Brazil, a number of the key anti-corruption reforms, including several of the legal and institutional reforms that arguably made the current Lava Jato car wash investigation possible were implemented during and indeed sponsored by the Workers' Party government that we now know was deeply implicated in serious corruption. So the, the Clean Companies Act passes, reforms to criminal procedure law pass under those governments. Uh, the Lula administration that begins, we talked about auditing before, begins the process of randomly auditing local governments. That's not directly related to Lava Jato, but it's still a significant anti-corruption, good governance reform. Um, and in Mexico, maybe nothing really came of it under the previous administration, but it was the previous administration uh, that presided over substantial changes to the Mexican constitution and other legal changes to create the national anti-corruption system, to create additional specialized bodies, and so on and so forth. So the to a naive observer, or even to a not completely naive observer, there seems to be a, a paradox or at least a puzzle here. Why do we see in many countries in the Latin American regions governments that we strongly suspect or later find out or we're highly certain are corrupt or the senior leadership is deeply implicated in corruption scandals, nonetheless seeming to get behind, to, to accept, and sometimes even to sponsor significant anti-corruption reforms of various kinds. What do you think is going on? So it could be several things. What comes to mind first is that we need to remember that even though the leadership of the PT was involved in corruption, there are a lot of people behind the PT effort that were 
honest and contributing to making Brazil a better place. You know, you have participatory budgeting introduced in Brazil thanks to the PT. You have FOIA introduced in Brazil thanks to the PT. FOIA being a Freedom of Information Act for everyone who's not familiar with that acronym. So we have to not be uh, too quick to judge everyone thanks to the, the behavior of some, even if those few are leaders in, the, in a party, uh, be it José Rizreo or Lula himself. So that's the first thing. And, and, and I hope we, we don't forget the contributions of PT members who did a lot of good at the end of the day. And um, it can be another thing, though. What's, what's happening might be what happened in Mexico with the introduction of Free Information Act. People remember Vicente Fox for having introduced that law, but he only did it because civil society forced him to. And that's probably, the members of civil society probably voted for him, uh, just as uh, PT support was quite broad at, at certain points in history. And it's those people, those voters, who wanted to see uh, a more honest government who pushed for uh, these sorts of measures. So that's something to keep in mind. And if I can go back to the previous question for a second. Please. For me, a real question of what Lopez Obrador's administration will look like. Again, it's still too early. But for me, a real test here for Lopez Obrador, one that I hope your listeners and everyone will, will pay close attention to, is how he's going to respond to the Odebrecht scandal. How is his administration going to respond to the Odebrecht scandal now that he's in office? So it's not too late for him to catch up with Peru and with Brazil. It's not too late. So maybe I won't pass judgment yet. Mm -hmm. I still think it would be a mistake for him not to confront corruption, but maybe it's too early to tell whether he will or he won't. I know he said he won't, but maybe he'll catch on and he'll see the importance of this. And as a result of that, he'll take on the Odebrecht scandal and he'll confront it directly. We'll see. Great. Fantastic. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask one last question of you, and that's the what's next question. So obviously you have this book. It's still in... There's a complete manuscript, but I know it's still in the relatively early stage, so I'm really asking you a little bit to project a little bit beyond that. What do you think is the next big thing that you want to work on? And another way of thinking about this question more generally is what do you think should be on the agenda for academic scholars and researchers interested in corruption? What's what's the next big project that you would really like to tackle or that you think other researchers of your generation, our generation, ought to be tackling in this area? I'm interested in understanding the incentives of those who fight corruption. And uh, just to give you, give you a flavor of what I'm talking about, let's look at somebody that we both know, Doltan Delagno, prosecutor in Brazil who leads the Lava Jato task force. And a previous guest on this podcast, for those of you who are listening to this. So why would he take the risk that he took? Why would he take that step that Indiana Jones took? Why would he confront the corrupt, considering, again, all the costs, that, that the personal costs, professional costs sometimes even, that, the, that, that comes with that? At least we know that it's very risky. Maybe it pays off, but it's extremely risky in a, in a country where corruption is in high equilibrium. So why? It, from a rational perspective, it, it doesn't quite make sense. Somebody like prosecutor like him, somebody might say, well, he gains recognition. Well, but he also loses privacy. Well, he was able to write a book. Do you think he's going to get a lot of money <laughs> as a result of those books? No. So you can't be so cynical. You have to leave room for this possibility that there's just this interest in the greater good. And, uh, and I'm interested in exploring that. Why? Why do these people, Belmaldana, Aldana, who, was, who we heard speak at a conference at Rice University recently, you were there. Uh, actually, you moderated that panel. Uh, why does somebody like her take the risk? Why does she go against uh, president of her country, 
uh, when it's discovered that he's corrupt and not knowing whether uh, her prosecution is going to prove successful. Why? From a rational economic model perspective, I don't think we can make sense of it. So, so I'd like to explore that further. That sounds fascinating and a bit of a departure because your work, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with it, I, I think of as very much in the vein of experimental work, field experiments uh, analyzed with very rigorous quantitative statistical methods. Uh, and I'm not sure whether those that particular method will, will quite fit quite as well if you're trying to understand the incentives of these uh, corruption fighters, but, but perhaps you'll, you'll prove me wrong or, or, or else use a different toolkit. Uh, but thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you all of you uh, for listening. My guest again has been Professor Paul Lagunas of the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Best of luck with the book. Uh, I look forward to reading it as soon as it is out. Thank you very much, Matthew.